simple, the plan of salvation, that any child can understand what he's done for us. It really is amazing what he has made possible for all of us who come to him with childlike faith. Would you bow with me once more? Let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you're always ready to speak to us through it. And that it has the ability, Lord, to penetrate to the very hearts and thoughts of man. And that it's ready to do so this morning. So I ask that you would open our ears, open our hearts, and give us, Lord, responsive and obedient spirits to follow through on what you ask of us. In Jesus' name, amen. The great novel Pilgrim's Progress was written in the 17th century by a man named John Bunyan. This is one book, apart from the Bible, where if you have not read it, I highly recommend that you do read it, and if you haven't read it in many years, read it again. It is well worth your time. John Bunyan wrote this book while he sat languishing in a dark prison for the sole crime of preaching the gospel. The tale he penned is an allegory of the Christian life, which described the journey of a man named Christian as he leaves his home in the city of destruction and sets off on a great journey towards the celestial city. Along the way, Christian is joined by another pilgrim named Hopeful. They overcome many challenges together, but by the seventh stage of their journey, they begin to grow weary of the difficult path and wish for an easier way to the celestial city. They then notice a pleasant-looking field to their left called Bypath Meadow, and so they decided to detour off their rough path to travel in this smooth meadow. But soon night overtakes them and they find themselves lost in a terrible storm. At last, wearied and worried, they fall asleep under a tree, only to awake in the morning to the cruel voice and the foul stench of a hideous giant named Despair. Despair first beats them severely and then takes them captive and finally throws them into his dungeon at Doubting Castle. In this picture, you'll see an artist's rendition of that moment as the giant despair throws Christian and Hopeful into his dungeon. Bunyan writes, It was a very dark dungeon, nasty and stinking to the spirit. And here the two men lay in misery from Wednesday morning till Saturday night, without one bit of bread or drink of water. Finally, having reduced them to a miserable depression, the giant despair leaves a knife, a rope, and some poison in their cell. The implication is clear. Death is their only way out. So they could either choose to starve or to take their lives by their own hands. While the two men are sorely tempted to end their own lives and to end their misery, but they remembered the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And so they resigned themselves to the continued torture of the giant despair. Now, the dictionary definition of despair is the loss of hope. Have you ever experienced that type of despair before, where it just feels as though hope has vanished? There's no way forward. Now, maybe you haven't experienced it as uh, despair in the same way that Christian and Hopeful did in this moment in the dungeon, but chances are at some point in your life you've experienced despair or the loss of hope in some way. Sometime when the giant despair took you captive, and the light at the end of the tunnel was not deliverance, but rather a freight train headed your way. Has anyone ever experienced a time like that before, where it just felt like things kept going from bad to worse? 
Well, maybe that describes how some of you are feeling a little bit today. And if so, I would like to draw your attention today to this single truth. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, we read this. For this reason, he, being Jesus, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, when scripture says that Jesus was fully human in every way, it means that he was fully human in every way. And this means that the darkest, blackest pit of despair and utter hopelessness that human emotions are capable of experiencing and descending into, Jesus was capable of it as well. And in fact, he experienced it as well. The worst that fail flesh, sin, and hell, and Satan himself can throw at someone, Jesus endured it all. He took the worst that can be thrown at any man. And now, it begs the question, what specific things did Jesus endure? What things did he suffer that enable him to identify so perfectly with our situation, regardless of what we're facing? What enables him, through having experienced this, to help us, no matter what we face today? Well, to discover the answers, we're going to do a comparative study between Matthew chapter 26 and Psalm 88, which was a prophetic psalm of the Messiah's suffering. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 26 and put a bookmark or a finger in there, and then also flip back to Psalm 88, and we're going to be flipping back and forth. And so if you have a bookmark or a couple of fingers, Matthew 26 and Psalm 88 is where we're going to be looking this morning. Now a little bit of background on the 88th Psalm. It is listed as one of the sons of Korah as the author. Whoever that author was, was most certainly a man who had experienced deep sorrow and despair in his life. In fact, his words in the 88th Psalm have been dubbed the Black Psalm or the Saddest Psalm. In fact, the only slight glimmer of hope is in the opening verse, which says, O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out to you. And so here we have this glimmer of hope that still he he acknowledges God is the one who can save him. But then from verse 3 and onward, it just dives deep into the gloom. Verses 3 to 6 read this way. My soul is overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near the grave. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. And it continues on in the same tone like that, right until the end in verse 18, which concludes with this line, You have taken my companions and loved ones from me, The darkness is my closest friend. Now, if you're looking for something encouraging to read, you might want to skip ahead to Psalm 89, a very uplifting and and joyful psalm. But Psalm 88 is not a place where you're going to find very much encouragement. And yet, it's in the Bible for a reason. And as depressing as this all is reading this, 
It is a perfect description of what Jesus endured in the dark hours between the Passover supper on Thursday and his resurrection on Sunday morning. It all begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll see in the next picture a a picture that I took of our time in Israel when we were at the Garden of Gethsemane. And there, while in Israel, I learned from our Jewish tour guide that Gethsemane is actually a very bad pronunciation or mispronunciation, I I should say, of two Hebrew words, which are gat and shmanim. Gat meaning olive and shmanim meaning press. So put together gat shmanim, or we took Gethsemane out of that somehow. But gat shmanim meaning the olive press because it was, of course, an olive grove. And you'll see there in that picture a massive olive tree. And it was somewhere in this vicinity, in this garden, that Jesus' deep sorrow and passion began as he was pressed for us. Turn now to Matthew chapter 26, and we read verses 36 to 38. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, Gatshmanim, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And now if we flip back to Psalm 88, notice how closely verse 3 matches Jesus' words in the garden. For my soul is full of trouble And my life draws near the grave. And so the first way that we see Jesus identifies with our human suffering and despair is in this. Jesus knows what it is to experience agony of the soul. Here we see Jesus say, my soul is in distress. He is in agony. This is not just sadness. This is a type of agony that is deeper and darker than most of us can comprehend. And yet I suspect that some of you here today have been there, or at a place similar, where you know what it feels like to have your very soul overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And in that moment of agony, you just felt overcome. Perhaps it was at the sudden death of a parent, a spouse or a child, a struggle with illness or extreme physical pain, the end of a relationship or a marriage. Someone you cared about deeply turned away from God and rejected Jesus as their Lord. Or perhaps it was a time of deep, dark depression where it just felt like Satan's attacks against you were relentless and without end. Whatever you experienced, we can know with certainty that Jesus experienced agony of the soul to the very breaking point of what a man can endure. And in Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, Luke the physician, the one gospel writer who took note of this detail, he describes this. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Here we see Jesus experienced a type of mental and physiological torment so severe that it's believed likely that a medical condition known as hematidrosis occurred whereby, under conditions of great emotional stress, tiny capillaries in the sweat glands can rupture, thus mixing blood with perspiration. Jesus experienced it all to the very breaking point of what man can endure. And so let me ask you, is your soul in distress? 
take heart. Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Secondly, Jesus identifies with us in this. He experienced betrayal and abandonment by those closest to him. In the next picture, you'll see a painting of Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. This portrait stands in the church located at the Garden of Gethsemane. And this painting of of Judas' betrayal is in this church known as the Basilica of the Agony, a fitting description. And again, we turn to Matthew chapter 26 and continue to read there in verses 45 to 46. Then Jesus returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And as bad as Judas' betrayal was, perhaps one of the saddest verses in the entire narrative is the last line of verse 56, which simply reads, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. We turn back to Psalm 88 and verse 8 and again see this accurate description. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. Now let me just say that having your nose bloodied by an enemy hurts, yes. But that pain is nothing in comparison to the pain of being stabbed in the back, betrayed by the closest of your friends. We expect to be opposed by our enemies, but not by our friends. And now, before we dismiss this aspect of Jesus' suffering too lightly, we have to remember that these men had spent almost every moment of every day of the past three years or more together. The bond that was forged in that time of intense ministry is something that I think very few people have with their friends today. Perhaps the the closest thing I can think of in this bond that they must have shared is when I hear stories of soldiers returning home from war and they describe the type of bond that they formed in their unit where in the heat of battle, each man says, I am ready to die for my companion at a moment's notice. And some of them do. And Peter's declaration, we hear that sort of ring in his words when earlier in that same night he said to Jesus, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And today in Jerusalem, Above the ruins of what is believed to be the location of the high priest Caiaphas's palace stands the church of St. Peter, as you'll see in the next slide. This is the place where Jesus was taken first following his arrest and also the location of Peter's three denials while he hung back in the courtyard to see what would happen. And this picture that you're looking at right now are the church doors entering St. Peter's. And on the large church doors is this carving and this painting depicting Jesus pronouncing to Peter, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And there you see Peter's shocked response, No, not me, Lord. But yet, just a few hours later, we know what happened. Not only did Peter abandon Jesus and flee with the rest earlier in the night, but we know in Matthew chapter 26 and verses 73 and 74, What transpires? After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said to him, Surely you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to call down curses upon himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. 
And right beside the church stands this statue. As you'll see in this picture, the moment of Peter's denial. The rooster's on top, the soldier's lurking in the background, and there's the little servant girl who elicits Peter's strong denial. And just as Jesus had said, before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny him not once, not twice, but three times. And finally, realizing what he had done, Peter goes out and weeps bitterly, leaving Jesus entirely abandoned to face his persecutors alone. Have you ever been betrayed before? Have you ever had a close family member turn their back on you? Jesus knows exactly how that feels. And he knows how you feel in a moment like that, utterly alone by those who had swore to be with him to the death. And yet he faces his persecutors utterly alone and abandoned. If that's how you have ever felt in your life or if you feel that way today, rest assured Jesus knows how you feel. The third way that Jesus knows and identifies with the human experience is Jesus experienced being falsely accused and his name being slandered. As you'll see in the next picture, another painting from that same church of Jesus' mock trial before the high priest Caiaphas and the entire Sanhedrin. In Matthew Matthew 26 and verses 59 and 60, we read this. The chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Now, I don't know if there's anything that hurts so much as having your good name slandered and the natural instinct that follows to defend yourself, to vindicate yourself. But in the face of all of this, we read in verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. All of these people heaping accusations against him. They finally get the two who say, we heard him say he's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And Jesus says nothing, not a word. And finally, Caiaphas, the head priest, the one who had instigated all of this, he breaks Jewish protocol that stated that he as the high priest, like almost a, a modern-day judge today, was supposed to remain detached from proceedings, an objective observer, and he breaks all protocol and speaks directly to the prisoner. And he demands in verse 63, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And finally, Jesus breaks his silence, and he declares, Yes, it is as you say. Well, at this, Caiaphas finally recognizes his cue. This is the breakthrough he's been looking for. And playing to the gallery and to the Sanhedrin who are looking on the proceedings, he immediately tears his clothings in horror, as the law commanded him to do when he would hear blasphemy. And then he screeches out the words, Blasphemy! You have heard blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Put him to death. And immediately the Sanhedrin take their cue and everyone begins spitting upon him, mocking him. Someone else blindfolds him. Others begin hitting him and taunting him, saying, prophesy, who struck you? And finally, the guards close in and begin to beat him as well. And so Jesus' physical torment began. But let me ask you, have you ever been falsely accused of something? 
Has your name ever been slandered? Let me say, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. And then some. And then some. Fourthly, Jesus knows what feeling abandoned by God is like. And even as I say this, we must always remember that though it feels at times that God has abandoned us, we know his word and his promise that he will never forsake us, he will never leave us, he will never abandon us. But there are moments, there are times where it feels as though he has. And we see one of those moments in Psalm 88 in verses 14 and 15, where the psalmist writes, Why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. I have suffered your terrors and am in despair. Now in all four of the gospel narratives, the scene now shifts from Jesus' mock trial out to Peter waiting out in the courtyard. But we know that there is a gap of multiple hours somewhere in the night. For in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 1, it simply resumes with, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And so the text raises the question of what might have transpired in the hours between the trial and him being led away in the morning. What happened in this gap in the middle of the night? Now, it's likely that this being a palatial home, Caiaphas is living in the lap of luxury as far as Jerusalem was concerned. It's quite likely that the Jewish officials themselves would have retired to their beds to sleep or rest at least on this delicate question of what to do with this upstart Messiah. But then it begs the question, what about Jesus? How did he spend those dark hours of the night? On the next slide, you'll see what is in the ruins underneath the Church of St. Peter. This is the remains of what was a series of first-century storage caves and cisterns dug beneath Caiaphas's palatial home. What you see here, it's difficult to understand what you're looking at. The only entrance that you see here to the cistern is through this narrow hole at the top. There's a, there's a, a well been built over top. There's a piece of glass, but the hole you see in the center was the entrance down. I'm looking straight vertically. I'm above it, and I'm looking down into the hole when I took this picture. And that was the only way in or out of the cistern. And it's believed that prisoners would have been held uh, for, for short periods of time. Prisoners would have been held in this cistern. And the way they would have done this would have been by attaching a harness of ropes around the shoulders and chest of the prisoner. And then lowering the prisoner down in this hole, half suspended in the dank, wet, dark below. And if this seems cruel or barbaric to you, you must remember this is a cruel and barbaric time by people whose hearts are filled with hatred for Jesus. And around the hole, the archaeologists who uncovered this discovered seven crosses carved into the rock around the entrance of this hole. And it is here in this pit that the early Christians believed Jesus was confined on that night in the dark hours between his mock trial and being transported to Pilate in the morning. And it has been dubbed the sacred pit. In the next picture, you'll see how since its discovery, stairs were built and a hole cut into the side so that pilgrims like us who went there that day could enter into the pit. And the sacred pit is about 15 feet square, 20 feet deep, no door, no window, no light. 
And we as a group entered into the pit, and it was an extremely powerful moment. As we sat in there, and our guide, James, had arranged that all of the lights be turned out, every last one of them, and we were uttered into a pitch, inky darkness. And then there in that darkness, he pulled out a small flashlight and his Bible. And he read to us the entirety of Psalms, chapter 88. And you'll see there a picture of James standing at the small podium or platform that was built inside of the cistern. And there in the darkness, verses 4 to 6 just jumped out at me and they took on a whole new level of reality. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. And there in that dark pit, very likely the exact same place that Jesus hung for hours, I was simply overcome with the thought. Even before the cross, before the floggings, what unspeakable horrors did Jesus endure to set me free? There is a proverb told that at the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly amongst themselves, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. God can judge us? How can he know about suffering? A young Albanian man snapped, How does he know what I have endured? As he removed his shirt to reveal a bullet-scarred back. In Kosovo, we endured such terror, shootings, torture. And another group, an aged Aboriginal woman, pulls a crumpled, tear-stained photograph from her pocket. What about this, she demanded, my precious child, taken from me, kidnapped, I have not seen her a day since. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had their complaint against God for the evil and for the suffering that he had permitted in the world, the things that they had endured. What did he know of such things? What did God know of all that people had been forced to endure? For God leads a sheltered life in his throne in heaven, they argued. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. At last they were ready to present their case. It was all rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, they argued, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born into a hated race. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let his name be slandered. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Then let him be tortured. Yes, let him be tortured in the most exquisite ways possible. And at the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die in the most painful and shameful way possible. Yes, a public spectacle. Let him be mocked until his final ragged breath. 
And as each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing their sentence, Jesus stood, and he stretched out his arms, and he showed them his nail-scarred hands. And a hush fell over the throng, and not another word was uttered. As one by one, each knee bowed before the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. You see, my friends, Jesus went into the pit so that we could be redeemed from the pit. And try as we will, we will never ever exhaust the depths of Jesus' love The love so great and so deep that it motivated him to willingly suffer so much so that sinners, we, could be forgiven. And even more, that now he, our Savior and Lord, identifies perfectly with every single thing that we can suffer in this life and more. Also, that he, our intercessor at the right hand of the Father, is able to help us perfectly In our time of need, no matter what our need is, no matter how great, he, our Savior, knows he experienced it all, and he is ready and able and willing to help us. He's been there, and he overcame. And so rest assured that whatever you face today, he stands ready to help you overcome, just as he did. Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 2 to 3 give us this promise. And this instruction. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we will never entirely fathom the depth of your love for us, but we can see what it did. We can see how it motivated you and what you endured so that we, sinful men, could be forgiven. So that you, the perfect Lamb of God, went into the pit, went into death itself, so that we could be redeemed from the pit of sin and death and hell itself that we could be redeemed and lifted to live life everlasting with you and for you. Thank you, O God. Thank you for this great salvation. Thank you that there are always new layers of your love and your passion and what you endured on our behalf. There are always new layers to unpack and to simply sit in awe at what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, that in this moment, even as we've considered again what you endured, I pray that as we enter this week, this would just be a thought as we go through each hour of of each day to come as we approach Good Friday to consider you who endured such opposition from sinful men so that we, that's me and everyone here today, would not grow weary or lose heart. And so I pray, Lord, that out of this place of despair, we would find great encouragement today that you went to the darkest place You overcame it so that we could come up in victory and that we can stand today in victory with you. 
And so I pray that you would encourage us, your people, that we can go forward in victory because of you. We love you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen.